Does the clack-clack sound of typewriter keys make you nostalgic? Or how about the crackle of vinyl spinning on a record player? You may consider typewriters and record players relics of the past, but there are plenty of people who are keeping them alive and well. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. From old video game consoles to typewriters, this morning's show is about vintage machines and people who use them. Glad you're with us. I don't want to set the world on fire. I just want to start. The Gramercy Typewriter Company has been around for over 80 years, and the owner's not a fan of new technology. In fact, he doesn't take credit cards and doesn't use email. He holds fast to the typewriter and says a growing number of young people are embracing the machine as well. I recently talked with him at his shop in Manhattan's Flatiron District. It just takes a little getting used to typing on a manual machine again. My name is Paul Schweitzer uh, with the Gramercy Typewriter Company. Uh, I've been here since uh, October 1st of 1959. My father started this business in 1932. I came in with him after three years of the service. And here I am almost 54 years later still here cleaning and repairing typewriters. How is that, that you're here so many years later still doing this in today's digital age? Well, there still is a a need and a desire for these people to want to continue typing on typewriters and for the, seems like the younger people who uh, are rediscovering or first discovering uh, uh, portable typewriters and They're very interested in learning how to use them. Uh, A lot of them want to be writers, and uh, this is what they seem to uh, want. What do you think it is? There's something romantic about an old typewriter? Well, it's, of course, romantic. Uh, The younger people who are typing on it are telling me that they like the the sound of the keys hitting against the paper. Uh, They like to hear the bell ring when they come to the right-hand margin. and they're not distracted uh, when they're using their computers. Uh, there's just a more personable touch using their portable typewriter. You can't check an email on one of these. Right. No emails and no interruptions. You have an old typewriter before us here. It's a Royal. Tell us about this typewriter. Well, the Royal was one of the more popular uh, manual typewriters uh, all through the th- 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. They was the uh, the biggest selling typewriter here in the country. So we do see a lot of Royal Manual typewriters, portables and manuals. Uh, they seem to be constructed very well, and it's a, a machine that I've worked on for so many years. I'm very familiar with the workings of the machine. When you have a young person come in here to buy one of these machines or to have one that they bought at a flea market fixed. What do you tell them about the machine? This is how you care for it. This is how it's used. Yes, and of course we uh, will instruct them how to set margins using the paper release. 
They'll ask questions about the tabulated systems and the red, black, and stenciled positions of the machine. And, of course, showing them how to uh, properly hit the keys so that the key will come up and hit the paper. Uh, it does take a little bit of practice and somewhat of a explaining to do for these uh, younger people to understand how to work the machine. But they will get the, the hang of it just by practice, practice, practice. When you saw that technology was changing, did you cringe? Were you afraid that this is it? We're going out of business, folks. Well, in the early uh, 1990s, a lot of our service customers that we've had for all these years uh, started to get uh, laser printers, started to use the typewriter a little less. But we had a, a, a strong base of uh, typewriter customers. They relied on us. They knew us. They just started to ask us, can you now service our HP printer? Uh, in the beginning, I really didn't know what they were talking about. I didn't know what a printer was. But after more and more requests, uh, we went out, and the, uh, HP had training courses uh, to learn uh, how to service these uh, newer machines, and I was able to learn how to do that, uh, able to tell all our typewriter customers, now we can service your HP printers just like we've done all your typewriters. And it was just a natural uh, thing for our customers just to swap, uh, switch over and and uh, let us service their HP printers. On the phone, you told me to come around 3 o'clock because I do a lot of service calls during the day. Where are you going for those service calls? What are you servicing? Well, of course, every day we get calls to come to people's offices. They don't want to carry in their IBM typewriters or their uh, HP printers or fax machines to our shop. They want us to come and do on-site repairs and cleanings. And that's just what I do. Is the sign of a good day a lot of ink on your hands at the end of the day? Well, that's true. Uh, having dirty hands means I've, I've serviced lots of machines. I don't want to go home at the end of the day and have a clean hand. <laughs> Unlike most offices, I don't see any computer in this office. How computer savvy are you? Well, no, I'm not very computer savvy. I really don't have a computer here. I have. I myself don't need one at all. Uh, my son Justin on on one end of the business, he does have his computer and he can uh, do the work on that. I myself, I don't. What do you think about where we are today considering where you came from in terms of all of the technology that we deal with? Walking down the streets here in New York City, everyone on their phones, checking emails, typing away. Well, when I see that... I really, really don't like that at all. Uh, people bunking into me in the street and not paying attention to where they're going, looking at that, not listening to you when you're talking to somebody and that they're too concentrated on typing away on their little uh, iPhone or whatever you call those things. I don't use one. I would really prefer it if people didn't go near too close to me when they're using it. It's irritating. You mentioned earlier how using a typewriter can allow you to focus more because you're not distracted by having to check emails and all of that. So it sounds like you're thinking that these modern technologies are a distraction. Well, I would think so. 
If you want to pay attention to what you're doing, just sit in front of a typewriter and and you're going to focus on on that. Uh, like I say, the younger people, because I don't use a computer, but they're all telling me that there's too many distractions and they would prefer just to stay with the typewriter. No Facebook, no Twitter for Paul? No, not at all. No reason for me to... For, uh, get involved with that at all. All right, Paul, anything else about the typewriter business that you think we should know about? Well, I'm very, very happy that it's still still going strong for, for a Gramercy typewriter company. We're very busy, and I'm very happy that it's like that, and hopefully it will continue. Paul, thanks so much. Thank you. That was Paul Schweitzer of the Gramercy Typewriter Company. Tim Mullen is an electrical engineer by trade. So fascinated was he by electricity that he amassed a collection of early electrically-based technology. His collection includes X-rays from the late 1800s and Geissler tubes. Cityscape producer Morlene Chin recently got a tour of his collection that he keeps in his Chelsea apartment. Let's start from the beginning. What was the first machine you acquired? Oh, dear Lord. Do you have it still? I, I have no idea. <laughs> I, uh, How long I, ago did you start collecting? I think I've always been interested in it. It's always been in the blood. I have a beloved sister uh, who also is a phenomenal collector. Uh, unfortunately, we collect completely different things, so we don't compete. This is the one TV that people most recognize. This is the Philco Predicta with this, uh, with this iconic eyeball-shaped picture tube. The Predictor was made from 1958 to 1960 by the Philco Corporation of Philadelphia. And it was a radical design at the time. This set in particular, they made two different tabletop models and they made several different floor models. This floor model is called the Tandem or Penthouse model. And amongst the line of Predictors, it's different in that this is just a picture tube and this long flat cable you see going along the floor connects to the rest of the television, which is sitting over there by my front windows. Wow. So it was a remote picture, too. I think I've already mentioned I'm an aficionado of dumb ideas. This was kind of a dumb idea. Ads at the time show mom in her ball gown and heels calling the picture tube around the living room. <laughs> this thing weighs 50 pounds. <laughs> Not going to happen. But it still it makes for a very interesting set with the remote picture tube. Even the tabletop sets with that eyeball-shaped picture tube are widely recognized in an iconic design. Is that another appeal of all this arcane machinery, thinking about the history and how it was introduced and how this is like a sign of the future? Absolutely. Absolutely. Some of this stuff, you just can't believe like what it would have looked like back in the day. Yeah, it's difficult for us to imagine what life was like in 1960, let alone what life was like in 1890. But the radical breakthrough designs... I think we all appreciate, you know, anybody that's a student of design appreciates the one thing that came out and was completely different from everything else and might have set the tone for products that follow. What is the newest item you have, as in not the most recently acquired, but the most recently invented? Ooh, that would be hard to say. Probably this predictor that we're talking about. Uh-huh. For the most part, and this is simply a personal aesthetic, most of the design that I'm interested in is pre-World War II. A lot of things changed with, you know, during, during that period, and design became much more streamlined, much less of the flourishes that occurred you know, from, the, from the early 40s and, and before. And not that you asked this, but my cutoff point in collecting is, of, not surprisingly, really the widespread adoption of electricity. So really I'm aimed at things from about the 1880s through 1940. Every era had 
some sort of technology that was very charming, like the Nixie tube. Any? Yes. Do you think there's anything today, any piece of technology today that has that same charm? Of, of course, the flat panel display. I think that's fairly analogous to the Nixie tube, and I'm impressed that you know what Nixie tubes are. Uh, the flat panel display is such a breakout that it's ubiquitous, anywhere from your cell phone to your television to your laptop to any other computer or display to billboards on the side of buildings now or on subway stations. That's just one, and that was, of course, an easy one for me to think of following on to the Nixie tube. But uh, there's a lot of technology that's very widespread today, you know, and it builds on itself, like any, like any invention or any discovery. And uh, it's all sorts of things, of course, semiconductors, the recorder that you're holding right now, uh, compact flash, compact storage. Uh, over here you have a modern TV, a modern flat panel yeah. screen. <laughs> <laughs> yes, even I gave in and watched television on occasion. I probably watched too much TV. Do you own an, a smartphone? I do own a smartphone, yes. Uh-huh. I have a BlackBerry. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, One of those based on vacuum tubes would probably be a bit unwieldy, so it's, that's the good thing about the uh, modern electronics. So you don't live your life completely? with vintage machines? No, I don't. Uh, again, I quite well, I appreciate the history. Uh, it's interesting to experience what, how people must have listened to, you know, watched television. There are vintage televisions around here, as we were discussing, or listened to the radio or did whatever. Uh, I have no interest in living that for you know, day to day. My motto is always living in the future, playing in the past. <laughs> the machine that we're standing in front of is actually electromedical. Amongst other things, when electricity was harnessed, it was also applied to medicine. And a lot of it was quack medicine. They just apply shocks to people, it's, you know, thinking that it's going to regrow hair. Or it's... But this device in particular actually did have a real medical purpose. Uh, this is the Dr. George A. Wyeth endotherm. And if you had a wart on your arm, back then there was no way to tell whether or not it might be cancerous. So they would take this, apply the voltage to it, zap the wart off. Within a couple of days, the cells would die and the wart would fall off. This machine probably saved a lot of people from skin cancer. But now I use it for multiple purposes. Of course, I'm not going around like applying it to people. Uh, it's largely used for like geyser tubes. And turning it on, you know, hear that great crack. And we now have a running geyser tube. There's also a large tube on the floor here that we can light up. And it lights up all sorts of pretty colors when you hit it with a couple of thousand volts. This actually is generating probably about 30,000 volts right now. This is so mad scientist-esque. Uh, please, that's a politically incorrect term. Angry scientist, upset scientist, upset with good reason scientist. Um, this is a Kurtzman phonograph from 1919. Kurtzman was based up in Buffalo, New York, and they were known for making these drop-dead elaborate pianos, you know, with like you know, the gold fittings and all that. In 1919, they made a phonograph that the top of it is all glass. This thing must have looked like from outer space in 1919. It still looks pretty modern today. It's an acoustic phonograph, meaning that there's no electrical amplification of the signal, but it is one of the first motor drives. Rather than being a spring wind-up phonograph, it does have a, a motor that drives the 78 record around. Early phonographs were all 78s. You know, the 33 and a third, you know, LP as we know it, and the 45 and so on didn't come out until much later. But this one, I don't have plugged in right now, but I can play for you the Lumaire. Okay. Let me step back this way. What you're looking at here is essentially the same phonograph, but instead of a horn, it has this flat paper speaker. This is called a Lumaire diaphragm. 
and uh, got to give it a good wind here. Unlike the uh, Kurtzman, this one is muscle powered, basically. <laughs> you got to work out as a DJ back then. <laughs> <laughs> Benny Goodman, Jersey Bounce. <laughs> Not bad for all mechanical in 1924, right? Not bad at all. Yeah. Tim Mullen is an electrical engineer who collects arcane machines. He spoke to Cityscape's Morleen Chin. You can find photos of Tim's collection on our Facebook page. We're listed as WFUV Cityscape. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Borarki. Even in today's digital age, there are people still using machines from decades past, like video games that came in cartridge form. The Atari gaming console was the Xbox or PlayStation of the 1970s and 80s, with games like Pac-Man and Asteroids. I remember playing them myself. Anyone nostalgic for these old systems can visit Video Games New York. I recently paid them a visit myself. They have a store in Manhattan's East Village. My name is Daniel Mastin. I'm the manager here at Video Games New York. Now, Daniel, I'm looking all around here, and you have a lot of vintage video games, including this Frogger, which I remember having when I was, I don't know, a preteen. Absolutely. Uh, we carry all the video game systems since the beginning of video gaming, so even back to the 1970s. You know, in our store, we even have the very first home video game console, uh, and we've made it a mission to kind of carry every system possible from anywhere in the world. So not only America, even though that's where video games started, we also carry Japanese European um, and different uh, various versions of consoles. What was that first video game, that first video game console that you referenced? Uh, the first one was the Odyssey. That was the first actual home video game console that was uh, built as a company for sale like that. You know, there were a few things, uh, definitely arcade machines before that, and there were definitely homemade projects um, before that, but this was the first um, commercial experience as a, a home video game system. Was that Pong? Because I kind of want to remember Pong. Uh, essentially, it was kind of around the time. Like, Pong was in arcades at the moment. Uh, every video game system that came out then was basically variations of Pong. They were tennis, hockey. Um, the Odyssey itself actually featured, uh, I believe it was nine cartridges. It didn't actually have any data on it itself. They were all just jumpers, and everything was pre-stored in the system, and it would just change it. So um, something like hockey was basically Pong, but with two goals. Tennis was a dotted net with two moving paddles. You know, everything was still basically Pong, but with a little more imagination. Bottom line is the graphics were pretty basic, right? Yes, essentially generally two moving parts or three moving parts, the ball and two paddles, and then, you know, a few other things added in. So extremely simple. Atari, I guess, was really a game changer for in-home video game entertainment, wasn't it? Yes, Atari definitely jump-started the market and, and took it and ran with it. I mean... They are kind of iconized with really starting video games in homes. You know, they really marketed it and they pushed it and they controlled the entire market um, up until the 80s. You know, there was a certain point where Nintendo wasn't even putting a system out. They were in talks with Atari to actually bring the Atari to Japan, much like Sears had rebranded the Atari as the um, 
the the Sears Atari to sell in the Sears Robux stores, uh, and Telegames as well had you know taken Atari system and paid to actually rebrand it as their own. Um, so it's kind of interesting to see how that would have played out. Instead of having Nintendo at all, you know, they would have just been selling you know the American-made consoles over in Japan. What are the Atari games that someone of a certain age might remember? Uh, well, there's definitely a lot. You know, Pong is is going to be on the top of the list. Uh, you know, you have stuff like Asteroids, um, Defender, Galaga. You know, ET is definitely still roaming around as a, a very historical. Uh, story there. Uh, even Mario was on the uh, Atari system, and Donkey Kong definitely started there. And Donkey Kong was more popular back in those days than Mario was. Where are we today in terms of video games compared to those early video games? Uh, we are light speeds ahead. I mean, the, the market has changed time and time again. Uh, every generation reinventing itself, finding new ways to bring us into a um, the, the new sectors of the, the video game and the entertainment market. The ironic thing is that we're seeing such a different change that the stuff of, you know, even Nintendo, Super Nintendo, Atari, ColecoVision, Television, those are completely different experiences now. You don't really get that experience on these new systems, so you have a whole new generation splitting off and getting back into the retro stuff uh, and staying away from the newer stuff or enjoying them both but in different likenesses. So there's a market for Atari uh, Atari, it's a little tougher specifically for that market, but for the older games, there is. You know, Atari itself as a company has kind of been handed off um, and resold and changed around, and they are still putting out the flashback systems, which now come with a bunch of games in one, and they're putting it on, like, the iOS systems and things like that. But a lot of their games do still live on, you know, like the old Donkey Kongs and even Pong itself really went through a... Uh, a uh, tremendous birthday here, and they had a lot of fanfare about that, and people got back into it. But in general, the stuff of that era, it's still, you know, very popular. Do you view this store as one part museum? Because as I look around here, this could be an early video game museum. Absolutely. You know, video games is definitely a culture, and uh, we try to, you know, keep that thriving. You know, we maintain a very low-pressure environment. We are not sales-driven. You'll not come into the store and be asked to buy something. You won't be asked to pre-order anything. Um, we display everything proudly so people can kind of bring their friends in and, and see stuff that they grew up with or see stuff they've never seen in their lives before. Uh, we take um, an extraordinary amount of space sometimes to display certain things that aren't even for sale or that don't have much value. I mean, it's just, this is New York and space is a lot of money, but at the same time we try to maintain this is a store, but it's also just a, a place to visit and a place to show off to people, you know, really these are things that you know about and things you remember. So if you were to consider yourself the curator of this exhibit, what are the things that you think that people should take a look at most closely and learn from or just take in? It changes from time to time. You know, some of the things we have here are almost like permanent exhibits. Uh, other things, it, it changes. As we sell stuff and buy stuff and, and procure different things, um, sections will change. And that's the beauty of being independent is that we can really move things around at will. If I have more of something, I'll display that more prominently. Um, the stuff that's generally permanently here uh, is, is a lot of stuff like the... Um, the Kojima signs, you know, special edition PlayStation 3 system, and a lot of the uh, limited edition um, early Nintendo stuff, like the Power Glove and Rob. Um, we have a lot of, like, Famicom stuff, Game & Watch stuff. Give or take, there's a lot more. It just depends on the time you come. 
There was a jungle game that I remember playing as a kid, kind of like a Tarzan game. Do you remember that one? Do you remember the name of that one? Maybe Jungle Hunt? That was Jungle Hunt, yes. See how nostalgic one can get while talking <laughs> about this kind of thing? Yeah, it's definitely, and the funny thing about Atari is that their names are always so simplistic. You know, now we have, like, all these crazy names and, like, subtext to them. You know, the general Atari games were one word or two words long, and they were very, very simple, you know, words to them. Uh, it's ironic that, you know, just one, one word is enough to actually pick out the game, even though there are hundreds of games on the system. Dan, thanks so much for your time. Anytime. Thank you. Daniel Mazden is the manager of Video Games New York. Find them online at videogamesnewyork.com. Some people will always remain loyal to older devices, like Atari, even if they're far less practical. Producer Zach Hirsch went to Williamsburg, Brooklyn, to find out why one couple prefers their vintage technology. She still writes her letters on a typewriter. He listens to obscure cassette mixtapes. At the end of nowhere, there will I be left lost and wondering each So this is um this is men with broken hearts, which is a theme of mostly old country tunes, all sung by sorrowful men. And that is my typewriter. It's actually the fifth typewriter I've owned. My name's Michael Meehan, and I sometimes go by Pickle. Often to my friends, I'm known as Pickle. My name is Brooke Morrison, and I am a writer slash barista. I live with Pickle. It starts out with nostalgia, or at least for certain generations, people are actually remember these things from like their childhood or their grandfather talking about it, or or not even like that old, just like the '90s, like tapes. Heartbroken through my tapes. <laughs> A lot of them are from the street. I mean, the the tape player itself is also from the street corner. And a lot of the tapes are found, I just find, walking around in boxes that people don't want anymore. And there's something about listening to it, the audio quality of the tape. There's something more intimate about it. Someone has not only curated the music you're listening to for you, chosen the songs like any mixtape, but... They've done it laboriously, you know. They've they've done it with a, a tape deck, and they've stopped and started the tapes. And there's something more involved about that. But I feel like it's too easy now for things that are old or clunky to be fetishized. I have a typewriter tattoo. <laughs> I got that when I was 18. I grew up in Massachusetts, and I went to school in Vermont, and I, <laughs> it was funny because I was going up there, and I was, like, really scared, and I didn't have any friends up there, and I was like, oh, what is, like, something I'm going to bring with me that will comfort me? And it was, like, 
four typewriters. <laughs> and my roommate hated me. She was totally the opposite. They're great machines. They were around and popular for such a short but important period of time. And they were so important to, like, so many great works of literature were created on a typewriter. It's a lot easier to just, like, carry your little laptop around, but there are people out there still who insist on having those, and I think that's really comforting. <laughs> um, and having four might be excessive, but it's also kind of nice. Maybe the purpose that having old things serves is just to look nice, like having four typewriters. And that's fine and good, whatever your relationship is with it. I'm wary of, to use that the phrase again, fetishizing, where it becomes an unhealthy relationship with certain qualities of things that are old. Um, and this sort of, the image that those that those things yield rather than the actual relationship that they have with them, with those objects. You're more worried about intention, but it's nice when people use old things. Whatever their reasoning is doesn't matter, really. Michael Meehan and Brooke Morrison live in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for Cityscape updates. We're listed on both as WFUV Cityscape. My thanks to senior producer Morlene Chin, and thanks also to Zach Hirsch for his contribution to this morning's show. I'm George Bodarki. Have a great weekend. <laughs>